Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We are finally back to finish up Lyrical Ballads. We'll cover a range of topics pertaining to the extended second edition of the volume of poems, such as why the English countryside is so sexually arousing, why the Americas are signifiers of vice, and why no one should ever leave home, if home is the sexually arousing English countryside. And it wouldn't be the cannonball without long digressions on pirates, dinosaurs, the Andy Griffith show, you know the drill. You came for the discussions of Wordsworth's nationalistic desire to have sex with the coquettish English shrubbery, but you'll stay to find out what Faulkner might think to do with Barney Fife's lone bullet. The Cannonball is proud to be a part of Agora Podcast Network. If you are online, check us out at thecannonballpodcast.wordpress.com, on Twitter at at cannonballpod, and on Facebook at thecannonballpodcast. Being a part of the Agora Podcast Network, we heartily encourage and invite you to check out some of the other shows on the network, such as David Crowther's fantastic The History of England, uh, where David goes all the way back to the withdrawal of Rome's legions, the dawn of sub-Roman Arthurian Britain, and takes you up, well, presumably to the present day. Uh, Looks like right now he's up into the Jacobean Age, which is a fascinating time period. And I would heartily recommend that, of course, you start at the very beginning of the History of England podcast. But if you just want to jump in right when Charles comes to the throne, hey, now's the best time to do that. But anyway, on with the show. Welcome to The Cannonball, a podcast attempt to read all of the books in Harold Bloom's list of the Western canon. This is Claude Myron Guzer. Uh, with me, as always, is Daniel Doherty. Uh, Daniel, I guess it's been a while. <laughs> I guess, I suppose, you know, things have changed a bit since the last time we, uh, we dropped an episode. Of course, uh, our urging for everyone to put their life savings and retirement into Bloomcoin, the... Uh, <laughs> Cannonball cryptocurrency that has not 
gone well. So <laughs> our apologies to any listener who bet the farm on Bloomcoin. Uh, we will be launching Bloomcoin 2.0 soon um, with a whole new uh, system of tethering and blockchain. Uh, super secure, guaranteed return. So be on the lookout for that. But yeah, it has, it has been a minute. There's, well, there's been a lot of life well, going on for yeah. your humble uh, cannoneers here. <laughs> I, I moved twice, got a new job, got another new job, uh, and had to take care of children uh, in multiple ways. So, yeah, it's it's been a little bit hectic. But we're back, and, and if this episode is a little, a little wonky, uh, that's why. We're sort of getting back into the swing of things. Uh, we're picking back up with lyrical ballads. And there may be a few hiccups here and there, but uh, we hope you'll bear with us. So, uh, I guess this is Lyrical Ballads 2, The Revenge. Um, <laughs> yes, you, you thought it was safe to go back into the countryside. Well, this is the extension of the Lyrical Ballads. I, I think we talked a little bit about this before when, when we did our first episode on Lyrical Ballads. Um, if you read the, the edition that Michael Garner, uh, sorry, Michael Gamer and Dahlia Porter put out, they do a really good job in the intro of laying out the history of the composition and publication. Uh, what sort of happened was Coleridge and Wordsworth put the thing together after their magical summer together. They published it, then Wordsworth got a gig, um, well, a gig. He went to Germany <laughs> to study uh, metaphysics, which is where you would do that. Wordsworth mm-hmm. went with him for a bit, and they figured lyrical ballads would – it just kind of fizzled out. Um, it started picking up traction. It gained some speed, and when they got back – uh, Wordsworth, I believe, got the copyright back. There, there was enough interest to put out a, a, a new edition. So mm-hmm. he worked to get the copyright back because he thought they'd sort of been cheated and got it back and then set about sort of adding two lyrical ballads. And it was really kind of fascinating. I, I've read a ton of Wordsworth. I've read a ton of Coleridge. I'd never read the lyrical ballads as you know, a sort of concerted piece before. So seeing what was in the first edition and what wasn't in the first edition was really kind of illuminating. And then seeing what shows up in the second edition was also, you know, kind of eye-opening. It was sort of fascinating to me what Wordsworth added to it. And and I'm I'm emphasizing Wordsworth here because it really sort of is Wordsworth's project. I think Coleridge has one poem in the second edition. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's a real and of course like the um and i guess we'll get into it a little bit with uh, some of the ordering i know you were wanting to talk about but um yeah rhyme of the ancient mariner is now buried in the middle yeah uh of the whole thing instead of instead of opening up you know first the first the first shot you get of lyrical ballads being the rhyme of the ancient mariner now it's kind of it's tucked away in the middle somewhere right and you know it, there's that also it, it does sort of feel like you know we're we're using our our velvet underground analogy like opening um, <laughs> I, I still think it it's apt opening lyrical ballads up with ancient mariner is kind of like starting an album with sister ray but it does sort yeah. of feel like that there's this this wrestling back and forth kind of like the Lou Reed John Cale wrestling of what is this going to look like what is this going to sound like and it sort of seems like wordsworth's ideas went out 
but uh, we can talk about that in a little bit. Uh, I guess the yeah. first thing that we really sort of have to talk about, though, is the preface. In there's a line in the preface that I think is more famous than, <laughs> well, maybe not than it deserves to be, but it, it's sort of taken a little bit out of context to mean something that it doesn't necessarily mean. It's sort of like, uh, you know, Shelley in his defense of poetry writes that um, poets are the unacknowledged legislators of the world. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's yeah. often taken to be some sort of large, grandiose statement about the arts. But what Shelley literally meant is that poets in their use of trope um, reinvent language to the point that we have new conceptions of the way the world works. So yeah. it's it's a completely different uh, it's a completely different meaning than what it's often taken to mean. It's very specific to what is a kind of proto deconstructionist project. Um, <laughs> Wordsworth, which we, which we are very fond of here on the Cannonball. Well, <laughs> to a degree, but um, no, yeah. the 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 line from Wordsworth is um, that uh, was it. Poetry is the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. Right. Mm-hmm. Um. Yes, he does think that it's it's the spontaneous overflow, but that's the initial reaction. And what he goes on to write about is the way that the crafting of the poem is is a kind of um, it, it. The feeling comes first, but that doesn't belie the craftsmanship that goes into the poem. The poem is this uh, made thing that is working to replicate the emotion. Right. That, that was what kind of first threw me for a loop with a little bit with that, with the language using the word spontaneous, because, you know, I'm thinking, well, I mean, a poem is a very, it's a very affected thing. Yeah. Like it's not spontaneous. It, it has to be very carefully considered, but then I, you, yeah, I kind of gathered later the like, right. What the, 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 uh, intent behind that is like, well, what the poem is is the reproduction of the subjective experience of overflowing emotion, done in the, a very deliberate way. <laughs> so, I guess there is that kind of almost uh, not exactly an internal contradiction necessarily, because right. you know you can make a painting of a spontaneous, like quick second event that of course takes months or, or, you know, however long to complete. Right. But it, it is a kind of an interesting juxtaposition. Yeah. So I, I think that that sort of idea of this is my beautiful piece, just sort of splurted out on the page uh, with no <laughs> forethought or afterthought is, it's something of a, a I guess a, a misapprehension of what Wordsworth is saying and sort of what the romantic project is. You know, mm-hmm. um, it, it's sort of like I can't remember who had the critique of Kerouac. You know, Kerouac said, "Was it Kerouac? It was one of the beats said that all uh, editing is, you know, some kind of violence to the text." And I think someone critiqued Kerouac or um, on the road as being not writing but typing. You know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, right. and and I think that's what Wordsworth's statement is often interpreted as meaning, but that's that's not what he means. He he's very considerate yeah. of craft, yeah. and he's very considerate of the poem. As you know, we we were getting at this when we were doing um, 
Tintern Abbey, but I, I really stand by this. What he seems to articulate, at least as far as I can comprehend in the preface, is that the the poem is this kind of virtual reality where you can re-experience mm-hmm. this intense emotion um, a, as the artwork, and that's sort of like the primary thing of the artwork. Um, he, he starts it off by saying the first volume of the poems has already been submitted to the general perusal. It was published as an experiment, which I hoped might be of some use to ascertain how far by fitting to metrical arrangement a selection of the real language of men in a state of vivid sensation, that sort of pleasure and that quantity of pleasure may be imparted, which a poet may radically, uh, sorry, which a poet may rationally endeavor to impart. Um, fitting a metrical arrangement to a selection of the real language of men. So the thing that he keeps coming back to is the idea that this is representational language. This is language that people actually use as opposed to some kind of artifice. Mm -hmm. So he's trying to downplay the rhetorical affect or or sort of like the rhetorical aspects of the, the poem. And it's meant in a state of vivid sensation. So it's a moment mm-hmm. of, of emotional intensity. And throughout the preface, he really sort of elaborates on what he means by that. And there are just one or two moments that, that I think we should dwell on. Um, he says, several of my friends are anxious for the success of these poems from a belief that if the views with which they, are, they were composed were indeed realized, a class of poetry would be produced well adapted to interest mankind permanently, okay, fine, and not unimportant in the multiplicity and in the quality of its moral relations. So there's a moral or ethical project in this. And he says, and on this account, they have advised me to prefix a uh, system, systematic defense of the theory upon which the poems are written. But I was unwilling to undertake the task because I knew that on this occasion, the reader would look coldly upon my arguments, since I might be suspected of having been principally influenced by the selfish and the full of hope, foolish hope of reasoning him into an approbation of these particular poems. All right, so the... The thing he seems to be arguing here is that the the artwork isn't there to work as a sort of upfront rhetorical argument for or against a particular moral position, but that as the kind of virtual reality of the poem, you have to feel the weight of the moral argument. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. Partially, you know, I, I think that's where the criticism that the, the romantics try to bury the rhetoricity of their own poetry. Um, I think that's part of where that, that argument comes from. But there's another kind of weird, circuitous way that this comes back in the late 19th, early 20th century. Um, this stance hmm. is is something that... Joseph Conrad adapts or, or adopts at a certain point in his career until he gives up on it as a futile gesture. Um, you can look at Conrad's writing as really sort of beginning from this this point where, um, like the the major question in a lot of his novels is how do you have a moral system? where the, 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 the context that you're in is where 
everything of necessity can be bought and sold. So the only superstructure mm-hmm. is that where all things are bought and sold. Uh, a good is only good if it's goods. And if it's not goods, it is worthless, right? He was writing about empire right. and, and the capitalist system. Um, where he comes down about the middle of his career is in Heart of Darkness, where he wants to make this claim that morality is impressionistic. Not impressionistic as in sort of like floaty and flighty, but it's, mm-hmm. it's a sensorial impression. Like the, the moral weight of what Marlowe must do, the moral weight of his conscience is something that is palpable to him, right? Yeah. In in Heart of Darkness. Yeah. Um, but Conrad ends up, uh, if you read Nostromo, he absolutely satirizes his own earlier position with this sort of like aesthete artist who gets involved in this revolution in, <laughs> in South America. And yeah. um, the guy eventually just devolves into solipsism where he kills himself. Um, mm-hmm. And from there, we get the return to the city with the secret agent where there is no comprehensible uh, ethical system or ethical stance that you can uh, adopt. The mm-hmm. secret agent is a beautiful modernist mess because there is no perspective that can give you purchase on the whole. And mm-hmm. in that system, all this stuff is just, it's its null and void. Morality, ethics, yeah. it's a moot point. It's just violence, depend, like just perpetrators and victims. That's all. Right. Uh, yeah, it's it's very bleak. But it was interesting to me to see that, you know, it has its roots, I think, in this sort of like primary romantic project. Hmm. Yeah. So anyway, that was my ramble. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that that was what I thought was really kind of kind of interesting in um, the preface he mm-hmm. he has this idea that he, you you go to recognizable experience you go to common experience uh because it's it's palpable it's recognizable you can relate it's also transmitted by you know and this is his classism coming in it's transmitted <laughs> by people um with vocabulary that is in some ways more precise because limited uh, right, and right. quote-unquote natural as opposed to artificial, you know? Yeah, it's a very strange, uh, I guess not that strange, it's a very patronizing yeah. attitude that he takes toward throughout the whole preface because he's he's excoriating his fellow poets for using, well, words like excoriating. <laughs> <laughs> but... <laughs> But and and extolling this kind of um, like you said, like the natural speech, right? Right. Like the the like the kind of language that comes from your experience being so tied to the physical world, right? Uh, that you necessarily have to have you know very clear ways of speaking, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, which is very funny to think about when you're actually reading the poems, because if you try talking like that to anybody right now, like they would look at you like a fancy boy. <laughs> like I mean. 
there's no getting around it. Which which does make me curious as to like, well, just how highfalutin was everyone else's poetry, you know, or or was or was Wordsworth kind of. I don't know. Was was he was he yelling at clouds here? Well, I don't know. The, I don't know. There's some <laughs> there's some hypocrisies in the the preface. Uh, one of the <laughs> one of the things that that he, I, I I think it's about language, but it's also about trope. Uh, he wants sure. to to keep things simple, and and as much as he, I think admires someone like Milton. I mean, we talked about that with the the adop- the adoption of the verse form for Tintern Nabby. The, the oh yeah, verse. Um, right. There's like. I guess Milton's high baroque in some ways. You know, his his language is extraordinarily yeah. um, artificial, not necessarily in a pejorative way. I mean, T. S. Eliot thought it was artificial right. in a pejorative way, but um, but it's it's definitely in that kind of like it's grammatically sophisticated in the kind of way that like well, like a Latinist yeah, would yeah. try to write good poetry. <laughs> and of course, you know, Milton and all those guys were you know being a latinist was the, the greatest thing you could be right as, as i guess that's true that like in reading and it might just be shifts in vocabulary i suppose like in reading wordsworth because at no point in wordsworth did i particularly feel kind of out to sea about where the subject or verb was right in a way that you can with someone like milton so i will hand him that i'll, I'll, I'll give i'll give him credit for that <laughs> yeah 23 lines later we finally get the verb right but uh <laughs> right but the um well i guess the main verb yeah, 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 yeah. But uh, no, there's there's something else that he's doing too, where he seems to be bashing other poets for artifice, such as personification, which is literally unnatural. And what does he do? Well, he has two poems where two trees talk to each other. It's like, come on, man. So that's that's one of the <laughs> the little hypocrisies in there, I guess. You know, no poet is above artifice in in some way, shape, or form. But it, it, be that as it may, it was it was kind of interesting because it did seem to keep coming back to that idea that you know I, I kept talking about Tintern Abbey as a kind of thesis work. Uh, it, it really does have that idea that the, the poem, as far as Wordsworth is concerned, is this kind of re-experiencing of the moment. It's, it's a virtual mm-hmm. reality. It's a sensorial thing where you go back to that moment for that moment and you can see with it and be with it. And it can do this kind of moral, ethical, spiritual at its best work. You know, mm-hmm. and yeah, and that's what I kind of ad- admire about a lot of his project. But then there are some other poems in here that I guess we were sort of talking about this uh, a little bit off air. There are poems in here that seem to signal where Wordsworth ends up, a- and it's mm-hmm. hard not to read it in that light. Um, <laughs> this is where we yeah before yeah go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to say before, real quick, before we move off of the preface. Mm-hmm. Um, I had something I wanted to ask your opinion about yeah. because I thought this was pretty interesting. I hadn't thought too much about it. There's, um, there's a moment. It, he doesn't spend too long on it, but he mentions like why meter, yeah, uh, like why meter and rhyme in poetry. Like, how does that contribute to the whole, you know, uh, project of poetry? And I did think it was pretty interesting that. I, and correct me if I'm wrong, but like the argument I took away from there is that like he was mostly like, well, you know, it sounds different and neat, and it catches people's attention, mm-hmm. and 
and and that is something that like I thought was kind of a, an interesting point. I had you know, listeners of course know that I'm a, a total philistine when it comes to poetry. I'm I'm getting a little better, getting a little more you know practice and reading poetry, but like that you know hadn't necessarily um, for all his talk about using plain language, right, plain words and whatever that seemed at odds with the use of meter, mm-hmm. uh, but there I see where it all ties together, right? Like it, it's it's a kind of like. Well, we're using plain words, we're using plain language, but it's arranged in such a way that catches the ear. Like, you start to pay attention. And you'll notice, like, I don't know, like, I've started to try to notice that in my my life, you know? Like, that's how how so much music works. It's how how jingles work. A lot of, like, advertising slogans will have a little rhyme or, or meter to them, and that's how they stick. And that was, I think, you know, I'm sure this is, of course, very basic poetics yeah (laughs) but i did think it was interesting that he felt he felt the need to like explain himself for that respect well he's got this this interesting moment you know again the critique of the romantics is that they bury their own rhetoricity right so they they hide Mm -hmm. the arguments and they bury the the sort of artificiality of their own project but he has this this interesting moment it's on page 181 of of my edition the end of poetry is to produce excitement and coexistence with an overbalance of pleasure. So it, there's an excess of pleasure that you're supposed to feel from the 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 crafting of the work. Now, by the by the supposition, excitement is an unusual and irregular state of the mind. Ideas and feelings do not in that state succeed each other in accustomed order. But if the words by which this excitement is produced are in themselves powerful or the images and feelings have an undue uh, proportion of pain connected with them, there is some danger that the excitement may be carried beyond its proper bounds. Now the co-presence of something regular, something to which the mind has been accustomed when in an unexcited or less excited state, cannot but have great efficacy in temporary and restraining the passion by an intertexture of ordinary feelings. This may be illustrated by appealing to the reader's own experience of the reluctance with which he comes to the reperusal of the, the distressful parts of Clarissa Harlow or the gamester, while Shakespeare's writings in the most pathetic scenes never act upon us as pathetic beyond the bounds of pleasure, an effect which is in a great uh, degree to be ascribed to small but continual and regular impulses of pleasurable surprises from the metrical arrangement. Uh, uh-huh. the, there it is. <laughs> yeah, there, there, on the one hand, the the artifice of the poem is there to is to bring about the effect, but also to keep mm-hmm. it in bounds in some ways. Hmm. So it, it's something about the the regularity of the meter he thinks can like pull it back from being so overwhelming that mm-hmm. it becomes destructive. We get reminded, you know, that we're in the holodeck, right? If, mm-hmm. if Sorry, it's my dorky Star Trek The Next Generation <laughs> thing. But, you know, it's there's some little thing there to remind you that this isn't real, this is the illusion, this is, you know, uh, it's just a problem. Well, that's, uh, yeah, that's uh, meter and rhyme as the Brechtian touch. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. It's kind of weird, but that I, unless I'm misreading, that seems to be what he's yeah, yeah. he's No, yeah, about. I think so. But, but anyway, I, I just wanted to touch on that for a little bit. No, yeah, we, but yeah, we can we can move on from the preface. There's, <laughs> I mean, we have so much more to talk about than just the the intro and the I guess you know the reordering and all the poems. And I'm gonna I'm gonna be honest with you, Claude, and I'm gonna be honest with you all, the listeners. Uh, 
uh, and this might just be over familiarity, but this time it felt like it really ran together for me. There were some standouts, but I don't know. How was your reading experience? <laughs> kind of the same. It's I kept wanting another weird Coleridge moment, and it was just yeah. more of nature, more of nature. Uh, th- there really are some standouts, and there there's some some sort of things to talk about. And, and in particular, we might have to get a little bit blue with the palm nutting, uh, mm. but <laughs> oh yeah. But uh, for the most part, it, it it does seem to sort of scale, in some ways, to scale back on some of the human drama, with hmm. this kind of emphasis on the natural world. Though there there is plenty of human drama in there. A, a lot of it gets a little bit more pastoral. It's it's as if he's putting into effect. The kind of stuff that he was talking about in Tintern Abbey. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it, it really... Th- there are some that that stood out for interesting reasons. Uh, we'll talk about how America keeps coming up. So in The Brothers, in Ruth, in um, one or two other poems, we, we keep having these weird images of America that I thought might be interesting to, to discuss. Um, yeah. In Michael, oh yeah, that's another image of America. Uh, Michael is absolutely heartbreaking, and Old Cumberland Beggar is really kind of this amazing plea for dignity, you know? Hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. But yeah, a lot of it does seem, it runs together. A lot of it really does run together. Um, now there were apparently a, a, a friend of mine who is a romanticist was telling me that there's this section of poems that Wordsworth incorporated pieces of uh, that he didn't incorporate the whole that are really wild and and far out and full on like gothic weirdness that I hmm. kind of wish were in here. I'm trying to track them down. But uh, I think we see flashes of that here and there, but we don't see the the whole thing. Yeah. So in any case, it's it's a very different start to the volume because last time around we started with Prime of the Ancient Mariner. It's like here you go, kids. Right. We're right in there. <laughs> right. And here we we start with a, a much lighter. It's it's a different thesis. It's the expostulation and reply and the tables turned. Which are a mm-hmm. very gentle, sort of get up, go about. Uh, don't be stuck behind these books all day. Get out and you know feel with nature. <laughs> yeah, and it's also where we've got some of that uh, burgeoning transcendentalism, sort of light transcendentalism. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, sort of filtered throughout. But it's sort of easygoing transcendentalism, not the the not, not the pantheistic, anti-Christian, or, or I guess non-Christian. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, oneness flowing through all things, where we we all right. attach to the Ohm. Uh, yeah, it's 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 easygoing, but that's a very different thing than starting with the Great Gothic Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I, I feel like, you know, we're, we're record store dorks, you know, comparing, <laughs> you know, notes, but, uh, I, I kind of like the earlier version better. Like if we're going to start this, then yeah. damn it, let's start yeah. it. 
give me the road. Yeah, no, no, I, I'm. Yeah, I, I absolutely concur. Like it really. Yeah, their debut album was better. Yeah, for real. <laughs> Before the remix, right? That's right. <laughs> but uh, but anyway, absolutely. Anyway, the the it's sort of as you said that um, they bury rhyme of the ancient mariner sort of halfway through. And the mm-hmm. one thing that I did want to talk about, or, or the one thing that I did want to bring up, is uh, we didn't talk about it last time because it wasn't as prevalent a theme last time, but it's going to keep popping up, is the the presence of America. Uh, yeah. And yeah. I guess we can say the Americas, because it's not exactly clear uh, which America we're talking about. <laughs> But uh, yeah, and it's very like the I mean, and it exists almost purely as a kind of like uh, it almost it exists purely as a poetic, you know, uh, uh, construct. Right. No, absolutely. <laughs> Essentially. Yeah. And it's not at all the kind of like closely observed picture of the countryside like you get in his Tinter Abbey stuff. Right. It's uh, there's one person associated with the americas that seems to be north america specifically mm-hmm. you know the the colonies or the united states at that point um and then the rest i i'm not quite sure but we see it in the mad mother and i didn't notice yeah, this yeah. the first time but i noticed it this time her eyes are wild uh her head is bare the sun is burnt her coal black hair her eyebrows have a rusty stain and she came far from over the main uh, mm, yeah. So, the Mad Mother is a woman who has returned to England, and right. that return to England is something that keeps coming up through the second volume. People keep coming back, and they're not better for it. <laughs> right. <laughs> they never should have left. Yeah. But uh, that that was something that the the suggestion you know that she's sunburnt seems to me. Something to do with uh, perhaps the Caribbean. Um, Mm -hmm. So that would be an interesting version of America to take on, but he doesn't really sort of elaborate on it. Uh, So we end with Tintern Abbey. And, you know, that still sort of seems to to be the way that that he's thinking about closing out the poem, the, the, the book, the, the sort of culmination or, or the fullest thesis and then with the second one, with the second volume, we open up with Hartleap Well, where it's this sort of like weird moral story uh, about um, trying to control nature. The, the more mm. you try to exert human influence on it, the, the more it proves itself uh, stronger, better, greater than you it's about this uh nobleman in the middle ages who shoots a deer and where he where the deer dies there's a well and uh he decides to or or like a stream and so he decides to build a pleasure house and uh, he dies before it's completed the stones are sort of halfway there uh Mm -hmm. and then everything goes back to nature the landscape just sort of overtakes it and the poet meets this shepherd in the woods who basically tells him yeah, that was hubristic. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I guess I'm, but I, I, 
to me that would be an argument against any building at all um there's i mean especially in in great britain i i uh, i don't know if i've mentioned it on the show before but i am an avid fan of a little uh television program called time team (laughs) which ran for about uh 20 seasons between the early 90s and the i think the 2010s um but the 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 premise is that it's it's a british show it was from uh uh BBC Four, I believe the Old People Channel. I've been <laughs> I like it, but anyway, it's like a documentary show where uh, the bit is that you have a team of archaeologists and they have three days at a particular site to dig it and elucidate what they can about it, right? Mm-hmm. But what's really fascinating is that you'll have these sites where if you just like look out over it, it's just a, it's like a dirt farm patch, right? right. It's just this, this little patch of, of you know British land, you know, it's the English countryside. Maybe some rolling green hills or whatever, and then they get you know start digging on it, and it turned out there was like a gigantic Roman palace that was there, mm-hmm. you know, sixteen hundred years ago, and like like yeah, man, like you build anything, it's gonna go away. <laughs> <laughs> like it's not, it's not particularly you know hubristic. Well, I don't know, I, but maybe and maybe that's you know. Maybe that's Wordsworth's kind of broader point is that we'd be well to remember that, yeah. Rather than just singling out that particular night for his, well, I, <laughs> for thinking he could build a cool house. Well, I I think the 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 upshot of the poem is um, that he took pleasure in the pain of the dying thing, you know mm-hmm. that this this poor deer died, and uh, everything seems cursed uh, yeah, because the poor yeah. deer died, and it's right. this sort of like I guess this kind of. It, it it almost seems concurrent with the the ancient mariner, you know. The, if you try to express your power over the natural world, uh, there will be repercussions, right? Right. Um, right. Yeah. Yeah, and so that's it's it's kind of like, yeah, okay, I get it. And then we get the brothers, <laughs> and the brothers mm-hmm. is, you know, it's it's one of these. I guess you could call it a sentimental tale. About this, uh, these these brothers, um, <clears throat> they're the the sons of farmers, and uh, they the older one goes out to sea to the Americas to try to uh, get money to kind of like save the farm and save everything and. The farm goes under, but the priest takes in the younger brother, who is not exactly, um, he doesn't seem to be special needs, but is perhaps mm-hmm. mentally unwell. Mm-hmm. And uh, the the younger brother ends up sort of sleepwalking off a cliff. Or at least they, they presume it was such. They they presume that he didn't kill himself because there's some evidence that he had been sleepwalking and there's some other things like that. And yeah. uh, the whole the conceit of this thing is that uh, a stranger comes back and the village priest, uh, he meets the village priest who, you know, t- who takes him around the, the cemetery and points out all these graves. And the stranger who comes back is the older brother who had gone to sea to try to find the fortune to save the, the farmland and everything like that. Mm-hmm. And um, he finds out that his brother is dead, that his parents are dead, that everyone around him is dead. So he goes away and just becomes a, a tired, sad old sailor. Uh, mm-hmm. that... <laughs> Again, a very... 
a very well-worn trope for Mr. Wordsworth. The the tired, saddled, burned out person telling their tale of woe. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but he, um, you know, it, it's it's honestly a, a kind of affecting story. But again, mm-hmm. this was a person who had gone to the Americas to make their fortune, who comes back burnt in some ways, right? Yeah, like yeah. leaving the land is going to get you in trouble. And, right, <laughs> and that's that's sort of like what what keeps coming back here. Uh, and you know, yeah. m- my friend. <laughs> who I was consulting with, was saying that she has a friend from grad school who's writing his whole book on representation of the Americas in uh, lyrical ballads and in Wordsworth. And I'm like, it's, oh, nice. it's, now I want to read it because it, it, yeah. it just keeps coming up. But it, it seems to be tied to some kind of burgeoning nationalistic project that Wordsworth has. You have to stay in the countryside. You, you you have mm-hmm. to stay where you are. You know these uh, these attempts to leave to see other things, or, or even for economic purposes, right? Um, mm-hmm. They they're worse off for you than anything else. So anyway, that was where we first see it, and then we get the the series of Lucy poems. Um, mm-hmm. Lucy. They're based on this this little girl who Wordsworth sort of knew by sight, and if mm-hmm. I remember the the story correctly, um, she wandered. I think she was like ten or so, like between seven and ten, and uh, she mm-hmm. lived you know way 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 far away from the village, like in this sort of like isolated cottage, and she went out in a really bad snowstorm one afternoon evening and just never came back. Um, yeah. They, I, I believe, they found her the following spring. Uh, so she just wandered away and died, and that's what these poems are really kind of are. They're mm-hmm. they're they're poems about this little girl who was so far out there, and and I, you know, we talked a little bit about how in the prefaces he's, he's kind of condescending. Here, I think he really is trying to to honor this person who is just unknown. Like, okay, in in one yeah. of the most famous, she dwelt among the untrodden ways. Uh, she dwelt among the untrodden ways beside the springs of Dove, a maid whom there were none to praise and very few to love. A violet by a mossy stone half hidden from the eye, fair as a star when only one is shining in the sky. She lived unknown and few could know when Lucy ceased to be. But she is in her grave, and oh, the difference to me. Um, This was a person. This was someone important because she was alive. I think he's trying to honor and give dignity to to this little girl. You know. Yeah. It yeah. It does matter that she's gone. You know. It 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 does matter that she lived, and it does matter that she died. I think it's it's a very simple ballad, but its simplicity is kind of the point. I, I, I that that always that always kind of gets me. And then in yeah yeah go yeah. ahead sorry. Oh no, I was gonna say that was one that uh, affected me as well. Like that's that's one I I even for it being part of kind of a series, like you said, the Lucy poems. Yeah. Um. That that was one of the standouts really. 
Yeah, that and <clears throat> A Slumber Did My Spirit Seal. Uh, it's kind of a weird one. A Slumber Did My Spirit Seal. I had no human fears. She seemed a thing that could not feel the touch of earthly years. No motion has she now, no force. She neither hears nor sees. Rolled round in earth's diurnal course with rocks and stones and trees. Uh, this gets at mm. something that um, another friend of mine... Uh, I, I brought him up before. I'll keep naming his name because he's got books of poems out and everybody <laughs> should read him. Art Zillarulo. Uh Art had suggested to me that the end result of Wordsworth's Transcendental Project was this kind of... Um, embrace of, of death, right? Like mm. if... Yeah. I, I think we talked about this a little bit with, with, with Milton... If the Edenic state is the state of thoughtlessness, like unconsciousness, mm -hmm. then... Right, innocence. Right. Yeah. Then the way to return to that is when you don't think anymore, when you are a non-thinking thing, <laughs> right. i.e. inanimate object, right? When you return right. to objecthood, that is when... Um, or when you... Turn to objecthood. I don't know if I return to it. Uh, <laughs> let's not get into metaphysics here. Uh, but, <laughs> right. you know, that, that turn to objecthood is the cessation of thought. And if what you're trying to do is find that transcendental cessation of thought, then perhaps it can only truly be found when you are underground, part of the rocks and the trees rolled round in Earth's diagonal yeah. course. So, yeah. so there's something... A, a little darker in that, you know, that, that, that I think might get, get overlooked. Yeah. But, uh, anyway, absolutely. After that, we have these two weird poems where inanimate objects talk to each other. And I, yeah. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> it, it was, I really do have this, this question of whether Wordsworth was, I, I mean, is this self-conscious? You know, is are are we meant to? Are we meant to extrapolate from the ending of one poem into the next poem or the next two poems? This idea that the natural world is in conversation with itself, mm -hmm. um, maybe not in a literal yeah. way, as he does in these two. We have the waterfall and the eglantine. Where waterfall and a, a, a sweetbriar rose uh, talk to each other, and then we have the yeah. oak and the broom, where uh, a giant oak and a little shrub have a conversation, and then <laughs> we come back to another one of the Lucy poems, the the poems Lucy Gray. Mm -hmm. um, so it's this weird kind of you know, section of poems where, where I did have that, that curiosity about whether or not he is trying to signal something about the inanimate, but I, mm -hmm. I'm uncertain as to, to whether or not he's doing that. Sure. Hmm. And, and then we have a, a, a poem about a bunch of shepherd boys who get distracted and, uh, nearly lose a lamb so a poet has to jump in a lake to save her all right so then um, <laughs> yeah it's it's sort of silly uh we have poor susan which is a poem about a poor woman in the city who left her her rural 
whole upbringing. Um, yeah. And, and it's one of those poems that's, you know, it's hard to take in some ways, you know, especially for a guy like me who loves cities. Um, mm-hmm. You know, he's he's sort of championing the countryside as opposed to the city. You know, the country is real England as opposed to these horrible, right, you right. know, whatever. It's that, that anti-urban, anti-modern <laughs> uh, tick. Yeah. That, that you find in Wordsworth and Coleridge a lot. You don't find it in all the romantics. Uh, Keats was a city kid. Blake was a city kid. Uh, yeah. and, and you find it in some very damaging ways, uh, historically, in German romanticism. Um, mm-hmm. you, you can see how the, the, the Nazis really sort of used that anti-urban, uh, back-to-nature ideology as yeah. part of their... Well, that was... You know, yeah, that was part of the big sell of like the war. I mean, that's right. how you know it was, it was sold to like, well, we're going to we're going to conquer these vast swaths inhabited by subhuman Slavs right now, so that basically, basically, the Nazi dream was setting up an endless uh, series of like Chicago suburbs <laughs> and uh, over the the ruins of, and the and the the skulls of entire peoples. Yeah, really obscene stuff. Really obscene stuff. But one thing that I think is is interesting in poor susan and a couple of other poems uh especially mm-hmm. poor susan and i think michael share this i mean michael is heartbreaking but the the last stanza of poor susan poor outcast return to receive thee once more the house of thy father will open its door and thou once again in thy plain russet uh gown mayst hear the thrush sing from a tree of its own um the, there's nothing you can do that your dad's not going to take you back for you know there there's mm-hmm. nothing you can it's like there there's this moment in um Whitman's crossing brooklyn ferry where the the speaker is speaking across space and time and it's it's extraordinarily moving and touching to me because he's basically saying you're okay and you're going to be okay uh, whatever yeah. you've done, whatever transgression you've committed, it's okay. You, you think I'm better than you? I've done everything you've done. It's okay. It's sort of like someone laying their hand, like their hand on your shoulder, saying, <laughs> "I've been there. Don't worry about it. Right. You're okay. You're you're a decent yeah. person." Um, there's something sort of. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems. But getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Moving and touching about that, and and that's one thing that I think is kind of touching about several of these poems in here, is that whatever you've done, it's okay. 
mm-hmm. you, I, I, I will love you. You know, there's this, yeah, uh, and it's usually fathers and children, or or parents and children. Yeah, you know, um, it, it's it's something that seems always on offer. This kind of, um. Repentance or 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 openness to coming yeah. back, and that's what I think saves a poem like this from its kind of like anti-urban, you know, decadent city dweller screed. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. But yeah, that that's what I thought was was really pretty pretty moving. So we have <clears throat> a, a bunch more poems about. Um, you know, sort of like the natural landscape. We have this this fascinating um, back and forth, Andrew Jones and the Two Thieves. I, I, Andrew mm-hmm. Jones is this village miser who steals from uh, a dude who's uh, a beggar who's too poor and bent to be able to pick up, you know, the, the, the tiny little bits that somebody throws to him. So Andrew yeah. Jones walks by and scrapes it up. And uh, that's what causes the poet to curse the guy. And then we right. have the two thieves where it's this old man and his grandson going around like conning people and sort of stealing minor things around town. And they're indulged. There's something about the old yeah. man that's kind of cracked. And the grandson is too young to really know no better. And the daughter of the old man pays for everything anyway. So it, yeah, yeah. it's this weird indulgence, but also this kind of acceptance. It's, you know... You, it put me in mind of, and you'll, of course, forgive my, my Philistine uh, references and associations, but it put me in mind of, it's, it's a bit of that Mayberry attitude. Yes! No, absolutely. It's absolutely that kind of, like... Uh, affectionate tolerance of the town eccentrics. Yeah, you know, like where where the town drunk knows his his cell to go and put himself away till he dries out. Right. You know, it, or or was it Lawrence T. Bass is coming to town? He's going to break some windows That's again. Right. <laughs> That's right. That's exactly. Man, all right. Look, I'm going to pause here, and we're not. I I, I got to go off on Andy Griffith for a second. Um. I uh, th- that show was a lot darker than than people give it credit for. Like there was always a yeah, strong yeah. tinge of Faulkner to Andy Griffith. Like uh, you know, there there was one episode I I can't remember what exactly it was. I think it involved Lawrence T. Bass, but um, Andy and and Barney had to go out to this family on the outskirts of town because. I think it was Lawrence T. Bass was going to come kidnap their daughter, and they yeah. were afraid it was going to be a <laughs> right. shootout. And, uh, you know, so Andy and Barney have to camp out there, but in the middle of it, well, I don't know, Andy, you play some guitar, we got a jug, let's have a hoedown. So there's this little <laughs> musical interlude while they're waiting to all get shot. It was just... It was, I, will, I, will credit, I will credit the Andy Griffith show for recognizing that this is... I think this is a legitimate aspect of the truly bizarre culture of the American South, especially the the Appalachian South, where for, you know, for every idyllic little town 
two towns over, there's Phoenix City. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you're familiar with Phoenix City, Alabama, but it's a, it's a town where a, a state uh, attorney got shot out in the open in broad daylight because it was that run by the criminals. Yeah. It's, it's the kind of, it's, it's a very, um, I think Andy Griffith struck that tone. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's okay. I, if, if anybody's still listening at this point, uh, help me out here. <laughs> no, there was, I, I remember back in the day, um, uh, it was when I was in high school, somebody told me about this. I never saw it with my own eyes and it might've been something somebody made up or it might've been, I don't know. They said it was from some college humor magazine or something, but there was an advertisement for the, the Faulkner inspired lost Andy Griffith episodes, like vaulted Andy Griffith episodes that uh, (laughs) never aired that were sort of like the Faulkner inspired ones. So it was, it, it was this list of them. It was like, um, uh, Andy, uh, Andy takes the school marm up to Mount Pilot for a back alley abortion. Um, right. <laughs> oh, no. Barney puts the lone bullet through his brain. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Gomer and Goober go wandering on the golf course looking for stray golf balls, but find only madness. And Opie <laughs> and Andy go fishing. Which is actually like you could put a whole book of Faulkner short stories together, and yeah, that's it. You really good. And yeah. Uh, yeah, Opie and get, Andy go fishing. That's also a Faulkner story. <laughs> um. Anyway, sorry, that was my digression. But if anybody knows what the hell I'm talking about, please let us know, because <laughs> I like it's been bothering me for nigh on twenty years. Somebody in in my high school had had told me about this, and the internet has given me nothing. I, I go looking for it every once in a while when I'm too depressed or anxious from doom scrolling Twitter. And, uh, you, you know, if somebody can help me out or if somebody knows what I'm talking about or if somebody can lead me in the right direction, I, I would be forever grateful. Uh, anyway. That, uh, I, to, to get back to the lyrical balance. Yeah, I'm not sure that I want to at this point. But, no, so the, <laughs> the, the, we also get Ruth. Uh, and that was the one where, you know, the basic story of it is, you know, this uh, young English country girl – uh, whose home life is maybe not so great is sort of seduced and left by this guy who had gone off to the Americas and uh, specifically North America <clears throat> because he's got a bunch of uh, turkey feathers that he wears around as a kind of like weird headdress mm-hmm. and, and supposedly he has adopted some kind of indigenous attitude right or or, or yes, attitude yes. or like or, he yeah he was somehow touched yeah by the wilderness and he brought it back with him right yeah. but it's it's decadent it's it's really fascinating um it says whatever in those climbs he found irregular in sight or sound did to his mind impart a kindred impulse seemed allied to his own powers and justified the workings of his heart nor less to feed voluptuous thought the beauteous forms of nature wrought fair trees and lovely flowers the breezes their own languor lent the stars had feelings which they sent into those magic bowers it's it's interesting to me because the way wordsworth seems to be writing about north america uh, and I'm assuming this is North America because this guy has turkey feathers in his hair, right? And and you don't usually get turkeys in the Caribbean or in South America, to my knowledge, you know? 
Um, yeah. The 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 way he's writing about it seems to be about North America, but it's a kind of language that I think North America adopts about South America, right? This voluptuous yeah. weather and this wild voluptuous um, natural world, right? It's too florid and humid yeah. and hot and all this other stuff like that. Well, this uh, the the this fellow in question was specifically saying he had returned from Georgia. Yeah. Um. So if you can imagine the kind of like. You know, and at this point, you know, Georgia basically meant like Savannah and its environs. Right. So, like, the most Spanish moss draped, molasses accented, <laughs> <laughs> kind of humid South you can imagine. Like, that's yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it, it's it's kind of fascinating how Wordsworth is sort of like adopting this this kind of attitude of the decadence of the Americas. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it comes up again at the end, but we'll talk about that later. So Ruth is sort of left. Uh, she's married. She does marry the guy, but then she's left um, to uh, basically at the, the docks, and um, he, he runs off. Uh, yeah. Then we get a couple of poems about uh, Wordsworth's old schoolmaster who is this kind of, like, interesting figure um, who's sort of, like, in between things. He seems to be a figure who's intelligent, knowledgeable, wise, but experienced at the same time. Mm -hmm. So it seems to be Wordsworth sort of saying, hey, you can be smart and not... One of these, uh, what was it, um, these coastal elites, right? <laughs> right. Um, yeah, it's it's him sort of trying, I, I took it as him trying to uh, sort of like articulate this position that is some kind of like innate good English wisdom as opposed to this kind of accultured uh, wisdom, right? And, and mm-hmm. I, I guess at the time... If, you know, the aristocracy has purchase on education, then this would be kind of a, a radical move, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, now it just gets grating with the trope of real America, but hey, that's just me. And then we get nutting where... <laughs> um, yes. Uh, all right. So... Yeah, there's no way around this. He wants to have sex with nature. Um, it's it's an eroticization, <laughs> yes. like it's it's a masturbatory eroticization of the natural world. Like, and I would just like to say that I felt very vindicated because, of course, my first juvenile impulse when reading the title of the poem "Nutting," I yeah. immediately like snickered. And then I was like, okay, well, anyway, let's get in. It's probably about gathering acorns or something. Yeah. And he's like, no, no, it's actually. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's, it's like, all right, I, we're not doing Kublai Khan because that's, that wasn't right. put in this volume, but you have to read Kublai Khan with your, your pervert hat on because the whole thing is about, um, it's about creation 
And it's about sexual creation being one with poetic creation, being one with natural creation. And, mm-hmm. you know, before there was the stock footage, before before there was um, North by Northwest with, you know, Cary Grant and was it? Oh, who's the woman in that one? Eva Maria oh, Saint. Uh... Yeah, I think. Anyway, um, yeah. before yeah. you have them having a conversation and then the lights go out and the train goes through a tunnel, right? Yes. Um, <laughs> Right. You have Kublai Khan, which is about the earth and fast, thick pants breathing. And you're like, oh, okay, all right, I get it. And then a fountain momently was forced, a geyser shoots up from the ground. Okay, it's poetic creation, it's ejaculation, it's all that stuff. Um, nutting is exactly the same way. You have to read it with your pervert hat on. It's, it's about a dude yeah. going out into literally what he calls the virgin scene. And yes. then, you know... luxuriating in its delights um (laughs) yeah uh now it it does seem particularly english And, and and that was the weird thing where you know georgia had been alien and corrupt there's something about this forest that is inviting, pleasurable, and good, <laughs> if that right, makes right. any sense. So it's exactly, like, it's not the, you know, the the corrupting and over-fecund forest of North America. Right. <laughs> you know? Right. It's, right. This is, this is appropriate fecundity. Yeah. Um... <clears throat> Yeah, he he feels kind of bad at the end of it because <clears throat> he takes away some uh, some nuts, right? Like a big thing of 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 nuts, where he feels as if he's he's robbed the scene of something that was its, and uh, there seems to be some regret at this, you know, sexual delight. But then he ends in such a weird way. Then dearest maiden. Move along these shades in gentleness of heart with gentle hand. Touch, for there is a spirit in the woods. Um, there's something back there. There's something, you know, I, I, I don't know how to interpret this. Is this a good thing, a bad, <laughs> a good spirit, a bad spirit? Was it good what he did? Was it bad what he did? But it seems sanctioned in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, th- this kind of luxuriating ends with perhaps a, a, a bit of melancholy, but it's not the the life-wrecking voluptuousness that is the Americas, you know? Yeah, um, yeah. And, and it's not the life-wrecking voluptuousness that is the city, which will get you in trouble. So it's, yeah. it's weird. This is something that you can recover from, and the other things you can't. Um, he doesn't like Germany. Because it's cold. Yeah. I mean, who does? <laughs> he, he has he has the poem. I, 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 I actually I want to right now apologize. I actually know for a fact that we do have uh, listeners in yes, Germany, and and I've corresponded with them, and it, it is you do have a lovely country. Yeah, and I, every person I've met from Germany has been very lovely. I, I've been to Germany. It's great. <laughs> I I really yeah. So, some days I wish I was there right now. Um, 
But <laughs> yeah. But no, he he went to Germany with Coleridge and uh, didn't speak German and couldn't get along with anyone and. <laughs> So it was Germany's problem. Yeah, he had a bad right. Time. <laughs> Sorry, no. I, I I have friends in Germany. I've been to Germany a few times. Um, you know, I, I'm not bashing Germany. I actually really like Germany. Uh, but yeah. he he got stuck in Germany in I think one of the coldest winters on record, and so he basically mm. writes this poem about how miserable he is and wants to get back to England. Yeah. Um, and then we have the the old Cumberland beggar. And this is one that I, I I wanted your input on because, you know, I always read this as, as kind of this plea for dignity. Here is this mm-hmm. guy. He's, he's transient, but he's also a part of the village. And mm-hmm. he's, he's a part of this culture. He's a part of this society. He needs them, but they also need him. It's like yeah. their moral worth kind of depends on him at the same time as his life depends on them. Um, yeah. They they have a vested interest in maintaining him and in allowing him his dignity. And the undercurrent of this whole thing is don't send him to the poorhouse. This this was that moment where you know transients were sort of being rounded up and sent to the workhouses. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And well, I think part of that. Um, I I would place all this in kind of, and we were talking. Actually, we were talking before we were recording. Where we were talking off air. I would place that within the kind of, for lack of a better term, conservatism. Yeah. Of Wordsworth, because the so like this kind of issue of vagrancy, right? It didn't used to be an issue, right? Much how much how homelessness as we know it in the United States did not exist prior to the Ronald Reagan administration. Um. And the, the, the emptying of often quite horrible institutions, but right. like the emptying of mental institutions. Um, this kind of vagrancy thing and the, the development of things like poorhouses and workhouses were a direct kind of pol- – they were an effect of and then the poorhouses were a policy response to the, uh, the, the um, just uprooting. Of the British rural peasantry, yeah, the closures. That, that's, right. that is a process. The close, the cl- yeah, the yeah, the closures, the enclosures, ending the the practice of common resources. Um, all in all, sometimes you know, sometimes deliberately, most of the time, just kind of by accident, creating the mass of desperate people needed in the cities right. to work in the new industrializing, you know, United Kingdom. Um, and so I would I would really place that like in in that please to not send him to the poorhouse like there's that kind of like th- we've created these horrors that this guy has to undergo yeah and it would be an insult not only to his dignity but all of ours to just put him in that a warehouse for surplus people you know like what I mean it's really the kind of like it's it's a railing against the kind of classification of some people as surplus population yeah as famously quipped by Ebenezer Scrooge a few decades later right in the in a Christmas Carol but yeah that's so it's part and parcel of the kind of mourning of the loss of the English countryside yeah that of course goes through all of this yeah and that was that was the weird thing we, we were talking about this how we can call it Wordsworth's conservatism, but that doesn't mm-hmm. quite seem exactly to capture 
like our term and our terms for conservatism don't quite right. capture what Wordsworth is necessarily articulating here because I think you were talking about it off air, the contemporary mm -hmm. conservative gesture, that alignment of, um, what was it, capital and cruelty, uh, is exactly <laughs> the thing that Wordsworth is responding to. It's sort of like anathema to, exactly. to his project. It's what created the situation. That exactly. Yeah. Conservatism, as we know it, expressed in kind of right-wing politics around the kind of what we might call the North Atlantic world, like your Tory parties. And, and not to get too political about everything. Sorry, everybody. But um, the that that's a project in service of preserving the new world that Wordsworth hated watching be built. Right. Right. <clears throat> that's – so Wordsworth conservatism is for the prior age – not the you know the, the the prior age before the industrializing orcs yeah. of Saruman, right? Right. <laughs> he's he's he he wants the Shire where you know conservatism today is a label applied to the people who no let's keep the orcs chopping <laughs> everything down. Right. So I mean it's right. it's it's this weird kind of situation. I'm, and I'm not saying he's not being nostalgic. I'm not saying he's not also inventing this perfect past. You know, sure. But it, it. Oh, oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean that's that's what it's. You know, my kids still. You know, I'm watching them go through school, and I'm watching. You know, the the school. Uh, you know, they they're going to good schools and everything like that. I'm not trying to bash my kids' schools. Mm -hmm. I, I like it, but they're still. You know, here's the section on the farm. And every time they talk about farming and farm work, it's sort of like, here's a, a kindly old man with his sun hat on a tractor, uh, you mm -hmm. know, with this, like, um, you know, plow behind it. And, well, there are no migrant laborers. There's no industrial irrigation. There's no, you know, it's like there's no Monsanto. <laughs> yeah. It's just, yeah. here's your barn with the chicks and all this stuff like right. that. It's, it's like, <laughs> you know, and, and that's how the, the petting zoos and the farms are all sort of set up. And it's not reflective of actual agricultural process. <laughs> so it's, it's that nostalgia that I think is sort of like built into so much of how we think about rural life. It's, it's a nostalgia yeah. that um, I think you know is still sort of it, it's it's what wordsworth is operating on but i i think he's also registering as you're pointing out that there are some very real shifts economic social political uh geographic right and mm -hmm. that 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 displacement from um common resources is definitely a major one and i thought that's what mm -hmm. what cumberland beggar was so good at articulating you know yeah yeah absolutely um and then it all kind of blurs together until we get to michael and <laughs> yeah <laughs> that and and that was that's kind of the culmination here and i i found this poem heartbreaking i mean what a hmm. sad sweet poem about this older couple and their son and uh, they sell off part of the, the property to get the kid a decent education so he can go and maybe make a little bit more money than this farm, which seems like it's, you know, or the, the, mm -hmm. the, the sheepfold, which seems like it might be on the way out. 
and um, the son, you know, he he starts out good at first, but then gets dissolute in that wild, crazy city, and his behavior becomes mm-hmm. so shameful he flees to America. And so his dad is still there, just stacking stones for a sheep coat, waiting for him to yeah. come back. And it's it's heartbreaking because it it is another one of those moments of I'll always be here for you, you know. Yeah. Um, as a dad, that always hits me pretty hard. Like, yeah, uh, you know, yeah. What what could my kids do that I would never forgive them? And I I, I don't even want to ponder. They're 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 my kids, and I love them. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It, it's it's one of those heartbreaking poems that also deals with um, the shifts in the rural economy, and it also mm-hmm. deals with America as this place of like thieves and bastards. Yeah, um, well, it and it's and it's that's that's really interesting. This this angle on it. Well, I, I really want to read this book you were telling me about. Yeah, it's it's supposedly <laughs> it's also. it's in progress, and I'm like, I got a track. I, yeah, I might email this guy and be like, be, Hey, man, can I read a chapter? <laughs> right, because at this point, America, the the American, you know, like the 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 sort of Atlantic seaboard colonies that became the United States, the Caribbean, Canada, mm-hmm. you know, other places around the world, really did serve as a a place to put people <laughs> for lack of a better word. This, it resolved, it resolved a lot of well, I say resolved. It, it ameliorated a lot of social crises that Europe was gripped by. Right. Just because it had this release valve of like, well, okay, well we can send our restless young men somewhere else. Well, uh, they can go, they can go do colonial violence on somebody instead of messing things up here. And, but what you have was a kind of what it amounts to for a lot of like at the small scale, like on the scale of smallholder rural agriculture is a kind of a brain drain. Yeah. Like you had this, you know, you're there, you're, you know, a kid who, yeah, your poor, your poor parents have pulled together everything they could to send you off to like, you know, go, you know, make something of yourself and you can help support, you know, the family back home. And there's, you know, any number of, uh, land speculator crooks uh telling you about like all the money you could make you know out in the new world like here for 50 pounds you can own like a million acres you have uh you have press gangs yeah from the army and the navy who will literally just kidnap you uh to send you off to go do imperial violence in the colonies you have but there was also like this kind of like yeah but you could make your it's and it's a lottery right yeah you could go and like it's a, it's a it's all bets are off. You could go over there and you could become as a king because there's no one there to stop you. Yeah. There's no I mean of course there are people there to stop you and there are there is like the 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 land itself but the the concept of it is just pretty intoxicating and that's like if you can scrape together enough money for passage, you know, you can see why people would kind of take it. A lot of times desperate people, but also a lot of times like restless people. Yeah. Or people who saw like their parents way of life dying. Yeah, like, you know, I, okay, so this is another one of my weird digressions, but one of the things I've become more fascinated by uh, after having moved uh, back down south is Mm -hmm. pirates. I I guess this is an old man thing, getting, you know, sort of curious about pirates (laughs) and pirate history. But um, that was one of the things I remember distinctly in my fourth grade Virginia history textbook 
Um, just a passing line about how a lot of people <clears throat> uh, working on the early plantations were indentured servants who had their way pay f- uh, paid for them in order to do labor for a short time on the plantation. That I remember like that brief description and it sounded so benign and I just sort of tossed it off when I was a kid. And then reading about what indentured servitude actually was, it it was a yeah. it was a giant con game. Like they It really was. Um, exactly. It started once you got on the ship and they started billing you for all kinds of things and adding to the bill and adding to the bill and adding to the bill. It was it was slavery in all but name. And yeah, it, I mean, it was really like I mean, one of the closest kind of analogs you can think of is today, like uh, like predatory human trafficking. Yeah, like where you'll have like networks set up to like say, you know, if you if you have like if you're fluent in English, uh, then you know, in, in the Philippines, then like oh, we'll we'll pay your way to come over to America and get set up. But like we're, we'll keep a running tally, and you have to pay us back. And it's of course, of course, a treadmill you can never get off of, right? Yeah, and that, that I mean, that is exactly what it was. That's how a lot of our ancestors got here. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> like that's how the the pirate naturalist William Dampier ended up. Mm-hmm. Um, he's he's like one of these weird, fascinating dudes. Uh, that I've become fascinated by because he had to take a brief sojourn in Virginia near where I'm living now uh, in order to remove this worm from his leg. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) it took him a a month or two of relaxing on a plantation in order to tie a stick around the tail of this worm that had gotten embedded in his leg and slowly pull it out. Okay. Anyway, um, no, that's what (laughs) indentured servitude is what happened to him. And he was promised to be basically like upper management on this farm in new England. And they kept racking up the bill, racking up the bill, racking up the bill. And he ended up skipping out to what he thought was a better job in the Caribbean. And it turned out to be another con game. So he just hid out on an Island and chopped logwood (laughs) It's like, yeah, there's no way out of this. Um, but yeah, and, you know, this is another one of my bizarre asides, but I, I remember, you know, the, like, there was this dude in, in one of my grad classes, I was working on my MA, who's this really smart guy from Manchester, and he, you know, get a couple beers in him and he'd start joking about how... Um, you know, his pet thesis was that the rise in in soccer violence in the 80s and 90s was a direct result of the lack of empire. Um, and yeah. he'd start. Oh, wow. He'd, he'd start going <laughs> off. Yeah. You know, you got these um, sort of energized young men with, you know, uh, no way to let out their their violent tendencies and. 100 mm-hmm. 200 years ago you'd send them out to the colonies. He was joking, but I don't I don't think he's necessarily wrong. <laughs> um I <laughs> it, I mean maybe not maybe not about the soccer violence, but um that 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 really was as you said it could quote unquote solve the problem of you know population. Like you get people yeah. out there and you know and and I'm being ironic about that. I I, I think that's a horrible yeah, way of yeah. looking at um, 
other human <laughs> beings. But yeah, it's right. it's it's all sort of charted in here. You, you you can you can kind of see it back there. And and Michael, you know, as much as I guess we're we're being sort of um, I guess jokey about some of what Wordsworth is doing here because it, it does all mm-hmm. kind of tend to to blur together. I I, I think uh, that that's pretty accurate. There are these really touching moments, these really affecting moments. I think the Cumberland Beggar and Michael are those mm-hmm. those essential moments where you really are made to feel the repercussions of these great seismic social shifts social political and economic shifts and how do you not feel for for the people related here you know yeah absolutely yeah yeah, so I guess that gets us to the end of lyrical ballads. Uh, not as much Coleridge as I like. The, the yeah, the uh, the lyrical ballads uh, remix edition. Yeah, and so the, there really were a couple of poems, uh, a couple of Coleridge poems that didn't make it. I believe Christabel was supposed to go in here and then got axed for some oh, reason. Yeah, and um, yeah. I mean Christabel was never finished. Um, and maybe it was Coleridge's lack of a finish. And, and I think you could also argue that Christabel can't be finished. Like part of the thesis of Christabel is don't contemplate evil because it'll suck you in. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, it was supposed to be in here and I think it was axed for some reason. And, but it, it does seem to be lacking in those, those weird Coleridgean moments. And, you know, it's something's kind of off and, and it does kind of all, blend together when it's just Lou Reed doing it you you miss the edginess <laughs> of kale like that weird off kilterness but you know what are you going to do so uh, any any further thoughts on the lyrical ballads no just um this is one that again is uh one that I think I may come back to well I, I guess I say from the sort of personal subjective experience I'm glad that I read it all yeah uh, because this is really this was really stretching me because this is not my wheelhouse mm-hmm. at all um, like I honestly felt more I felt more comfortable tackling Milton than I did <laughs> romantic poetry and I don't mean that necessarily from like a like I'm too good for it or anything like that but just more a matter of like um, like I could do poetry like ah yes poetry dealing with the the mythology and and theological ramifications of christianity okay there's my way right right that's something i think a lot about that i've read a lot about that's cool um although i guess i really did get there with wordsworth though like tying it in with (laughs) the the enclosures and the creation of the english working class and that that really is what it's about yeah um well one one of the things it's about you know but uh it, it really is like it as with everything Almost everything we've read on the Cannonball is filling an embarrassing gap in my <laughs> liberal arts knowledge. Um, well, but I will say that Mr. Wordsworth definitely had a a gift for a turn of phrase yeah. and a devastatingly wrought line. Um, and yeah, I, I think there are a few I'll definitely come back to. I think I want to reread some of the longer form ones at, at stand as standalone. Yeah. Uh, like like Michael, like uh, Ruth, actually, yeah. and a few others, just because I was kind of trying to kind of marathon read this stuff, and I don't really think those got their due as kind of their own entities because there was the running together issue. Yeah, <laughs> no, yeah, yeah, yeah. But 
Yeah, but I had a really good. I mean, as always, I had an excellent time discussing it with you. Well, uh, and and learn and learning so much from you about it all, and how how to kind of contextualize it in my own experience. Yeah, I and I. I that's why why I was really uh, looking forward to talking to you about this. Was I know you know a lot more about <laughs> <coughs> the rise of the English working class or the development of the English working class than I do. Um, sure. But let me ask you this: uh, What do you know about love? Well, I mean, technically, I I'm at sort of the end point of the love process. Yeah, you know, I'm a married man. <laughs> the end point of the love process. I would say that uh, I have. Hey, you know what? I have a lot to learn. Yeah. Well, uh, that's how much. That's how much I know. Well, we're going to be learning a lot next time. Uh, we're going to tackle Jane Austen's persuasion of of all yeah. of all the books that that Bloom sort of selected the one that he writes about in the the western canon is uh austin's persuasion uh maybe sort Mm -hmm. of like a dark horse considering like pride and prejudice i guess would be the the um the main yeah kind of the front runner yeah yeah yeah. and or or like i or like emma i think is probably like that's another one that kind of ends up being like the poster child novel for her work yeah right but um persuasion i think his argument was that it was <clears throat> it was written earlier than the others and is more cognate with a kind of romantic project. Uh, romantic mm. as in, you know, Wordsworthian, Coleridgean romanticism. Yeah, not yeah. necessarily that. So uh, it's been a while since I, I took it on, uh, but I'm looking forward to rereading it for the next, uh, yeah. the next episode whenever we get around to it. The one thing that I do remember <laughs> is that as much as you know, I was talking to friend of the show Chris Ludovici about this. As much as you know, Austin is attuned to issues of the heart. She's also very well aware of economic, social, and political limitations. And there's so much in in Austin that's always a real shame because of those contexts. So I, I really mm-hmm. want to take a look again at persuasion and, and think about, you know, what is this tension going on there? And is there something sort of cognate with what we read about in Lyrical Ballads? Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm really looking forward to it. This is uh this is actually one of the rare instances on the cannonball where I have read the book we're about to read before. <laughs> I, I have read it. Uh, and uh, persuasion my main recollection was that I thought it was hilarious. Like, I mean, really yeah. like, like all Austin, I mean, she's an extremely funny writer. Yeah. And so I'm really looking forward to revisiting persuasion with the, with a few more, um, Hey, with a few more years of experience of love under my belt. Yeah. <laughs> and a kid or two. All right. And a kid or two. <laughs> Well, uh, thank you, Daniel. It's uh, been illuminating and fun as always. And uh, thank you for listening to us. Catch us on Twitter at what is our Twitter handle? <laughs> oh, uh, at Cannonball Pod. Right. And uh, it may surprise you since the show has been inactive for six months. So has the Twitter. Yeah. But well, we'll be changing that. We'll uh, we'll be uh, we'll be juicing that a little more too. Yeah. And uh, we have a website as well. You can find that in the show notes. Uh, I write on it occasionally. I'll I'll try and get some more stuff back up there soon. In any case, thank you for listening, and uh, we will be back hopefully sooner than we were this time. <laughs> Thank you.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.